Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. morning church. Our reading for today will be from 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 7a. At the end of the reading I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond with thanks be to God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 7a. For you know brothers and sisters that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm the shortest preacher we have. <laughs> um, yeah, but again, I'm, I'm glad to uh, be the one bringing the word of God to you today. And um, I pray that God would um, help us to receive his word. Um, the same way he has showed up, I ask that we show up again in the name of Jesus. But let's just even still talk to God. Father, you showed up in the, in the adoration. You showed up in the call to worship. You showed up in the prayers. You showed up, oh God. Even as the service was going on, you showed up. You showed up as the song was being, as, as Yobo was singing. I also believe that even as your word was being read, hearts have been prepared, hearts have been convicted, hearts have been changed by the reading of your word. But Lord, it's time for the preaching of your word. Your word testifies concerning your word that it is spirit and life, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's like an armor, that it's like water. We ask, oh God, let your word come like water upon our thirsty souls. Let your word come like armor upon our hardened hearts, oh God. Let your word come like a surgical knife that heals us, oh God, in the name of Jesus. I ask, oh God, that you are anointing your Holy Spirit to come upon me to deliver God's word not just, not just creatively, but powerfully. For yes. that, Lord, that even everyone will receive your word and be faithful to bear fruits, 60 folds, 80 folds, 100 folds, fruits of righteousness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. amen. Um, all right. So we have been studying the book of First Thessalonians for the past two weeks. And um, for those of us that watched with us for the first time, we titled it Wait. Because there's this big theme of 
waiting for the second coming of the Lord in the, in the book of First Thessalonians, that even though the Thessalonians were a very, very good church, even though they were a church that Paul had nothing to rebuke them about, they were still waiting for the coming of the Lord because they also knew that they had not fully conformed to the image of the Son. Now, we also learned that um, Paul uh, received a vision to go to Macedonia, and that was when he went to Philippi, he had some issues there, then he went to Thessalonica, and he preached there for about three weeks. In the book of Acts chapter 17, um, the Bible said some people committed to Jesus, certain Jews committed to Jesus, a number of Gentiles committed to Jesus, and a number of prominent women committed to Jesus. And I was saying last week that that's basically the making of a good church plant, right? There was money and there was people. They didn't have an issue, right? Um, so things were going on fine, but um, certain people came and charged Paul with saying that Caesar was not Lord, but that Jesus was Lord. And so Paul had to leave. So even though this church had the making or the, the signs of a potential good church plant, um, they didn't have discipleship. There was nobody that was over them that was going to keep them accountable. And many of us can relate to this. Among the numerous times we gave our lives to Jesus when we were growing up, right? There were certain points that maybe the reason why it didn't continue was because there was no one holding you accountable. You gave a life to Jesus in church or in a program. You went home and there was nobody asking you whether you were communing with God, whether you still had the relationship with Jesus. And so what is bound to happen is when we give, commit ourselves to Jesus and then there is nobody above us, the devil can come and actually cause us to lose our grip on the commitment that we have made. And this was Paul's fear as well. In fact, Paul felt that we wrote in chapter 3, he said that lest the devil comes to tempt you, that was why he sent Timothy to check up on them to see how they were doing. And Timothy came back to Paul with a very, very good report. And that's why Paul wrote First Thessalonians. And he was saying, man, I thank the Lord for you guys. Like, I mean, only God could have gotten you guys to where you are. So it wasn't just commending them. It was commending them in the form of thanking God for what God had done in their life. So you see in, verse, in chapter 1, he was talking about how the message of God rang out from them, how they were a model to other believers. They were a model church. They were a really, really good church. Then we get to chapter 2, and it feels like Paul stops commending them, and he starts commending himself. Right? I mean, and you're almost going like, Paul, I thought it's first Thessalonians, not first Paul. Right? Why, why, why are we talking about you? I mean, and if we know anything about Paul, you already you find it weird because Paul is not someone to actually just blow his own horn or praise himself. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was talking about a particular guy that was caught up in the third heaven. He said, whether in the spirit or in the flesh, I do not know. He was talking about himself. So he's not one to actually seek for praises anyhow. So, and, and, and so we can look at that and be like, no, this doesn't sound like Paul. In fact, the only times we know that Paul seems to defend himself or commend himself to certain people, you find it in 1 Corinthians or in Galatians, because certain people were, um, were Paul's ministry, were saying that he didn't have um, the criteria to actually preach the gospel. That's when Paul responds to them by saying, I have the criteria, the Jerusalem church has accepted me, and so on and so forth. But there is nothing like that in the, first, in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Nobody was attacking Paul. Nobody was saying, oh, Paul is... Um, Paul is a bad guy. Paul just came to trick you. Nobody was actually saying any of those. So why exactly was Paul commending himself? So why did Paul write 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 from verse 1 to 7? You see, in those days, there were some people we called, I would call them traveling speakers, right? They basically traveled everywhere talking. 
and that was their job. They were really, really good at it, right? They, were, they had great eloquence, they had great oratory power. And so what they would do is, they would get to a new place, they would talk, try to get you to commit to them, most of the time financially. And the moment you commit to them financially, they get your money and they move on to the next town. And so because they were absent, and Paul was also absent, was beginning to look as if Paul was like these guys. And you know this adage, and this adage that people say, if it smells like a dog, sounds like a dog, walks like a dog, it's what? It's a dog. So Paul had this issue. People already knew that, okay, it's as if these guys were insincere. And so they were already doubting the message because they doubted those, those traveling speakers. So in the very same way, because Paul was absent and was almost acting, and it seemed like he was acting like the traveling speakers, it seemed like they were not just doubting Paul. It was possible that they were not just doubting Paul. They were doubting the message. So it wasn't just Paul that was on trial. It wasn't necessarily Paul that was under fire. What was actually under fire was the gospel. Are we together? And that is why we have titled this sermon, The Gospel Under Fire. The Gospel Under Fire. We examine this under three headings, but before we before I, before I talk, talk about the three headings, I want us to understand something. That even though the gospel was under fire, there was a way Paul addressed the issue. Paul didn't address the issue by saying, oh, the gospel is real, the gospel is true. He addressed the issue by talking about the character of those that spoke about the gospel. In the law court, sometimes, when you want to cast a doubt on somebody's testimony, what do you do? You cast a doubt upon the person, right? Because if there's a doubt upon the person, then there's doubt concerning testimony. But if you can establish that this person is trustworthy and has good character, then at least we should actually consider what he has to say. And that's why the three headings are more tilted towards what it means to be a good minister. Are we together? Right, so, we t- so the three points are the minister's manner, the minister's motive, and the minister's model. I'll say that again. The minister's manner, the minister's motive, and the minister's model. So the minister's manner, and by manner I don't mean M-A-N-N-A, right, for Bible nerds. And so if you don't know what that is, basically bread falling from the sky in the Old Testament. All right, so it's bread. So it's actually bread. But anyways, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the, the way in which they went about the gospel. The way in which they went about living their lives as the gospel. I will even push it further to say the things that they actually did. And I've um, just reading the text, I've coined this. The Paul talks about this with three, with three sub-headings. I'm going to talk about another three sub-headings. One, the minister's manner is intentional resilience in the face of opposition. Two, faithfulness in what has been entrusted into their hands. And three, assurance of what, of what they have come to believe. I'll say that again. The minister's manner is intentional resilience in the face of opposition. Faithfulness in what has been entrusted into their hands. And three, assurance of what they have come to believe. So the first one, intentional resilience in the face of opposition. Before we even move on, let's even talk about who a minister is and why, this, why it is important for us to discuss this. So, Paul, you read in verse 2, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, We had previous, I mean, verse 1 actually, for you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. He didn't say, My visit to you. He said, Our visit to you. Verse 2, he says, We had previously suffered. Skip to verse 3. He says, For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives and so on. Verse 5, it says, you know we never used flattery. So you see this idea of we, we, we in the text. And for us to actually understand why Paul is writing the way he's writing, we need to understand why he was using the term we. So firstly, 
Who wrote the book of First Thessalonians? Paul, right? From whom was he written? You still say Paul. And you'll be sort of correct. But it was Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. You find that in First Timothy chapter 1, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. It was written from, it was sent from three people. Now you can say Paul is like a pastor, Paul is like an apostle, you know, like he's a super apostle. The things that he said were basically inspired, the inspired words of God. And you can say Silvanus was like a second class apostle because what he said wasn't the inspired words of God necessarily, but it was good, all the same. But then you find Timothy there. Who was Timothy? You can also say Timothy eventually became a pastor by the time when he was with Paul, at the time when they were in Thessalonica. He wasn't anything, he was just a basic he was a believer. He was just an average minister of the gospel. And so when you read this text, don't just think that this passage is talking to pastors and teachers alone. It is talking to you and me. Because guess what? Even though pastors and teachers, based on James chapter 3, will be judged with a stricter judgment, I'm not convinced that they will be judged with a different criteria. Even though pastors and teachers will be judged with a stricter judgment, they will not be judged by a different criteria. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see the requirements of who an elder is. He talked about they must not be greedy, they must not, um, they must not be given to too much wine, they must be a husband of one wife. Um, the only thing in those criteria that seemed like, oh, this seemed to be particular to the elders was actually the fact that they were supposed to be able to teach. And so, when you look at the elder, again, pastors are supposed to not be given to greediness. Are you supposed to be given to greediness? No. Pastors are supposed to um, be gentle. Are you supposed to, not, to be not gentle? No. The same requirement of the pastor is also the same requirement for the average believer. Because why? We have all been saved to be ministers. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the Bible says that he has given gifts to the church pastors, apostles, prophets, evangelists, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who does ministry? The minister. So the saint is supposed to be a minister of the gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for rebuke, correction, instruction unto righteousness. Verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect thoroughly furnished unto every good work. You have received the word of God so that you, as a man of God, as a woman of God, can be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. This good work, being a minister, is what God has actually saved us unto. So I don't want you to look at this text and begin to feel like, oh, he's talking about just pastors, or he used it to determine who a good pastor is or who a bad pastor is. I want you to look at this text and use it to determine if you are a good minister. If you are representing the gospel the way you ought to represent the gospel. So just going to the just going to the verses. In verse 2, Paul says, We have previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Now, the context was that God actually opened a door for them to go to Macedonia, to go to Philippi. They got there. And they still experienced suffering and were treated outrageously. Meaning what? You can be in the perfect will of God and still suffer and be treated outrageously. You can be in the perfect will of God and still experience opposition. Even though Paul has been called to minister in Philippi, you might have been called to minister somewhere else. 
You might have been called to minister in your homes, in your extended families. You might have been called to minister at your place of work, in the schools where you are working. The location might be different, but the assignment is still the same. And the devil is still going to try and uphold the children of God wherever God has placed them. There has never been a time where the devil has not opposed the gospel. And then you might say, are you saying that every time I experience opposition anywhere or suffering, is the devil that is causing it? I know the issue is more complex than that. We live in a falling world, all right, and bad things happen. But I am saying that if we are really ministers of the gospel, it is not possible for the devil not to bring opposition to us. And we together. And then you might then say again that, oh, no one is persecuting me. No one is, um, I'm not experiencing this kind of suffering or hardship or anything like that. But I'm going to say again, do not be deceived. Don't think that because the devil is not opposing you through persecution, he's not opposing you any other way. Because again, the tactic that the devil is using might be different, but the goal is still the same. To discredit the gospel by discrediting, by discrediting the ministers of the gospel. Amen. And so you find out that there are two ways in the Bible in which the devil actually... Um, in which the devil opposes the children of God. There are two ways he does that. He does this through hardship, but he can also do it through comfort. So we are usually used to the one where the devil opposes us through hardship, but we are ignorant to the times when he's actually opposing us through comfort. You find it in the Bible. Through hardship, there was a guy named John Mark. Paul said this guy was useful for ministry, but when he faced some form of hardship, he turned back. He became unfaithful. He wasn't living as the way he ought to have lived. And therefore, the gospel, in a sense, came under fire in his own time. Yes, we see that when opposition comes, we can get discouraged. Sometimes when opposition comes to your family, you get discouraged. Sometimes when opposition comes to your health, you get discouraged. But I want to say to you that your health wasn't the target all along. It was the gospel. That your finances was not the target all along. It was the gospel. Because he knows that if he discourages you and opposes you on all these fronts, you can get discouraged and you cannot live the way you ought to live anymore. But you also find an example of, examples rather, of the devil opposing the children of God by comfort. Remember the children of Israel. When things are going bad, they talk to Jesus, they talk to God. When things are going well, they start to lose their grip on their commitment. Again, you can say, ah, man, these guys are stupid, but I don't think it's ordinary. I think the devil actually uses, uses the comfort to oppose them in such a way that they live lives that made God to say, because of you, my name has been profaned among the nations. Because of the comfort, because of the devil used the opposition of comfort against the children of Israel, the gospel came under fire in their own time. Am I just saying that, the, that comfort is bad? Please, no. Am I saying that peace is bad? No, I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that we need to be careful with the way we actually embrace comfort, with the way we embrace peace, because it's still a trick of the devil to cause us to relax and not to live up to what God has called us to live. We are more comfortable than the Thessalonian church was, but many of the times we are still not as spiritually active as they were. Because of this, this issue of comfort, we've given in so much to comfort such that we are not able to be resilient. We're not able to even live the kind of life that God has called us to live. And because of this, the gospel seems to have come under fire even in our own time. What then are we supposed to do? You find what Paul did in verse 2. Paul said, with the help of our God, 
We dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. With the help of our God, we dared, resilience, to tell you his gospel, there was intentionality involved. We dared to do so, and we were intentional about it. We told you the gospel in the face of opposition. There was intentional resilience. And even for us right now, for many of us, maybe in your families, maybe where you are working, the gospel has come under fire. What the Bible will ask us to do is to be intentionally resilient in those places. Maybe you are a parent here and you are beginning to think that, oh, I mean, I tell my children to do what is good. I tell them not to lie. I tell them not to steal. But your children don't find you ever reading your Bible or ever communing with God. Because of you, don't think that you believe what you claim to believe. And because of you, the gospel can come under fire even in your own homes. What you are supposed to do is to be intentionally resilient, plan, and make it in such a way that your people, your own family can come together, read the Bible together, and pray because you are supposed to represent something. You are supposed to live a kind of life that glorifies God. Or maybe some of us are here, we've been called to be witnesses in our extended families. And because of one argument somewhere, you're no longer talking to the person you're supposed to be talking to. You're now angry. You're no longer witnessing to, you're no, you're no longer a witness of the gospel in those places. What intentional resilience means is that maybe you need to go and buy a bottle of wine and go and reconcile. Maybe you need to speak to them and tell them, maybe even apologize. And actually so you can be in a position where you can tell them about the gospel again. I know that we are all being called to different places and this means different things for different people but it means something. What does it mean for you as an entrepreneur? What does it mean for you as a secondary school teacher? What does it mean for you to be intentionally resilient where God has called you to minister? May the Lord help us in Jesus' name. But another thing you notice about the manner of the gospel, of, of, of the minister of the gospel is faithfulness in the things that God has called them to do. Faithfulness in the things that God has called them to do. You find that in um, verse 4. Paul says, or the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul received his approval from God to be entrusted with the gospel in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. The Bible says, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them to do. But what you, what you begin to notice if you read the story, if you read the book of Acts, is that Paul was actually serving God before he claimed, before God called him to something else. Paul was faithful over little things, therefore God entrusted him. With more, Jesus said that if you are faithful about little things, God will put you over bigger things. The approval here is not referring to the approval of salvation. No. It's referring to the approval that comes when we as Christians yield to the grace of God over our lives and live the way God wants us to live where God has placed us. In Matthew chapter 25, there was this, Jesus told this parable about um, a rich man who traveled and gave um, his people, he gave them Five bags, give one five bags of gold, he gave another one two bags of gold, give another one one bag of gold. And um, the one that received five bags of gold did well with it and multiplied it. I mean, multiplied by two actually. It became ten. The one that received two, it became four. The one that received one, he didn't do anything about it. What was Jesus coming to the one that received five? He said, Because you have been faithful over little, I'm going to entrust you. With more, if we are faithful where God has placed us, God is going to entrust us with more responsibilities, more a larger scope for us to watch over. The Bible says in Second Timothy chapter two, verse fifteen, it says, "Study." Another version says, "Work hard to show yourself approved unto God, a workman not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth." 
Rightly dividing the word of truth actually means being able to discern the scriptures, right, like a preacher would. But not all of us have been called to be preached. But all of us have been called to work hard to show ourselves approved unto God, not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth in where God has called us to be. And many of us may here, you might be saying, God is no longer using me the way he used to. God is no longer using me for the big things he used to use me for. The question is, the little things that he has given unto you, what have you done with them? Where you are right now, what have you done with what God has gifted you with? For example, some of us have been gifted to know sound doctrine. You can smell false doctrine a mile away. You can spot it. You know it well. But that is a gift. It's not because you are wiser. It's not because you are smarter. It's because of God's grace towards you. There's a certain level of responsibility that is then required from us because we know the truth. What we are supposed to do is not to beat people up with the knowledge that we have, but with love and care and concern, point them to the truth that will lead to their liberation. Because the Bible says that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Shall set you free. We want to be part of a movement that renews this city of Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. Yes, we want God to expand us numerically. Yes, we want God to expand us spiritually. The question is, right now that we are just less than 500, what are you doing with the gift that God has given unto you? Because God is not going to increase us if he doesn't feel like what he has given unto you, you're already faithful with them. Be faithful where God has placed you. Work hard. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, Paul said, the grace of God in my life was not in vain. Why? Because I labored far more than the other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God that has been given unto me. What is supposed to happen is based on the grace that God has given unto us. We are supposed to work hard. We are supposed to be intentionally resilient in the face of the position of comfort, in the face of the position of hardship, and live as faithful ministers of the gospel. I pray for us in the name of Jesus that God's grace over our lives will not be in vain in Jesus' name. We will live as faithful ministers of the gospel in the name of Jesus. But thirdly, you find the assurance of what they have come to believe. There was assurance of what they had come to believe. You find that in verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. They knew what they had come to believe. The word error there simply means they were not wrong. They knew that what they were saying was true. John says this in another way in 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to quote, I can't read it. I'm going to quote um, King James. He said, uh, what we've seen, we testify what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've taught concerning the words of life. They knew what they were talking about, that what we have come to believe is true. And this is what fueled their resilience. Check verse 2 and verse 3. Paul says, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we, tell, we dare to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error. The reason why they were that resilient was because they knew who they had believed. They knew what they had come to believe. City Church, if indeed what we believe is true, it is cruelty for us not to actually talk about the gospel. If indeed what we believe is true, that the gospel is that God has come to save us from darkness to light, and those that reject this gospel will face the wrath of God, it is wickedness on our part not to live out the gospel in such a way that the gospel no longer be under fire. But this is not all that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul also talks about the motive of the, of, of the, of the, of the good minister, the motive of the good minister. And again, 
I summarized on that two sentences. It says, avoiding flattery because the gospel is enough. Expecting a reward because God is who we please. One, avoiding flattery, that's the motive, because God is enough. Expecting a reward because God is who we please. Now, you remember the traveling speakers that we talked about? That um, there were those that were going to use flattery, they were going to try and exaggerate. It's also the Greek, it's also the Greek word for exaggerate. They're going to try and exaggerate the gospel so that, I mean, their own words, not the gospel now, so that people can commit to them, so that people can um, give them money and then they bounce. Paul then comes and says, oh, we didn't exaggerate. We didn't, we didn't use flattery. You find that in, um, I think, verse 5, yes. You, you, know, you know we never use flattery. Let us zone in on that word flattery. They didn't exaggerate. When do we exaggerate? Most of us have been in positions where you're probably in a place, people are gisting, they're talking, and everything is going on fine, and everybody's giving their own input, giving their own input, giving their own input, so you don't want to carry last. So you just said, let me also talk. Then you start talking, and then you get to this point where sometimes your mind goes before your words, and you know that, oh, my, this thing is not land well. Oh, no, it won't land well. The story is not sweet enough. So what do you do? You spike it up. You have to. You exaggerate. The reason why we exaggerate is because the story is not good enough. The reason why people will exaggerate on the gospel is because they are convinced that the gospel is not good enough. One time I was talking to somebody, I was preaching to him, and I told him that the gospel is that Christ has come to save us from sin and death unto life, joy, and peace, and stuff like that. And he said, okay, okay, is that all? I mean, is, is, that, is that all? And I was like, eh, well, basically, essentially, that's, that's, what, that's what it is. And I was like, and what happened to all those things that pastors usually tell us that we will not suffer, we will not do all those things? It's like, this is not enough. And many people, have, we've all listened to, probably you've been to a place where prosperity gospel preachers are preaching and they tend to exaggerate on what the gospel is. And if you don't know what they, who a prosperity gospel preacher is, they tell you that, oh, you will never suffer. In fact, you will receive your blessings now. If you don't receive your blessings, it's because you don't have enough faith. I can help your faith, send $10 to my account. That kind of a thing goes on. But the reason why they are exaggerating like that is because in their subconscious, they don't feel that the gospel is good enough. And you can then come and say, I thank the Lord. We are not like the prosperity gospel preachers. We are fine. We are perfect. We are good. We preach the true gospel. Yes. But it's also possible that we might have the same problem but be displaying a different symptom. Now, because when somebody is about to exaggerate, go back to that scenario we gave. When you're about, when you're adjusting and people are adjusting, and you want to give your own input. If you know that that story is not going to land well, there are two things you are going to do. You might do. You might exaggerate, or you might do what? You keep quiet. Silence is a proof that you do not believe that the gospel is good enough. Silence is a proof that you don't think that Jesus is enough. That is just the way you are reacting to it in your subconscious. You don't feel that the gospel is good. You, know, you don't feel that the gospel is, is enough to be the power of God unto salvation. Yes, it is foolishness to some people. Yes, it is weakness to others. But the Bible says that it's the power of God to save everyone, both the Jews and the Greeks. The gospel is good enough. Christ is enough for us. Amen. Amen. But secondly, expecting a reward. The motive is they were expecting a reward because God is who we please. They were expecting a reward because God was who they were pleasing. You find that in verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. 4b. We are not trying to please people, but God will test our hearts. You find it also in verse 6. It says, we're not looking for praises from people, not from you or anyone, even though as apostles of Christ, 
Bukalabasate, that one authority, they were not seeking for praise from people. They were seeking for praises from God. They were not seeking for reward from people. They were seeking for reward from God. The person that you think is going to give you your reward determines how much you actually work hard. If I'm working for Pastor Femi, for example, and he promises me that he's going to give me 100,000 naira at the end of my job, assuming, and then I'm working for Tosin Oshini, and he says he's going to give me 150,000 naira for the same job, uh, I will work harder with Tosin Oshini than I'm going to work with Pastor Femi, right? It's just not because I feel like, oh, this person is going to give me more. They were not expecting rewards from people. Even in our subconscious, the major reason why we don't serve God enough, why we don't put as much effort in being intentionally resilient is because many times the person we're expecting to reward us in our subconscious, we know they don't have enough to reward us. If we really believe that God is the one that is going to reward us, then we are going to work harder. Then we are going to be resilient in the face of opposition. And once we begin to understand this, we begin to understand that the person that is going to reward us is the one that, holds, that owns all the cattle on a thousand hills. If you understand the person that is going to reward us is the one that owns the whole earth, it will change the way we serve. It will change the way we minister. There is a reward waiting for us for faithful ministry. Praise God. Well, I'm also moving to who then is the gospel's model? The gospel's model. Um, I have ignored verse 6 all along while I've been talking. Verse 6b. Um, it says, even though, he said, we are not looking for praises from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. And by asserting our authority, another version says we could have asserted our rights. And this is actually referring to um, financial, financial gain, money, right? Because there's this idea in the Bible that if we sow spiritual things to you, we should reap carnal things from you um, as ministers of the gospel. And then you look at that and you're like, that sounds like a transaction. Now, what is happening is this, that because Paul has been called to a particular place where he would not be able to make enough money to meet his financial needs, but he's also at that place where he can actually make enough, um, have enough resources to supply people's spiritual needs. The Thessalonian church were in a place where they were going to make more money and have less, less, less spiritual resources. So when they come together, it becomes complementary. Paul gives them of his own spiritual resources. They give of their own, they give of their own financial resources. It's not trade by battle. It's actually a partnership. But Paul comes, and so Paul had preached to them. So in a sense, they actually owed him. In a sense. But you also read that Paul then says that we did not come to insist on this. We did not accept our own authority. If you read down in verse 12, verse 13, Paul says that they, he, actually, he and his fellow ministers, they worked on their own to take care of themselves. So they didn't, they didn't demand for their rights from the people. What the people owed, they took it upon themselves. Paul was not the first person to do this. We remember Christ Jesus who when we owed God because God was good to us and we returned him back with evil, Christ took upon the debt that we owed. That's why we say even though salvation is free, it didn't come cheap. It cost God his only begotten son. Christ was the perfect minister. Christ was the one who took upon the debt that people owed. And that's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, 
he endured the cross, despised the shame, and seated at the right hand of God, who for the reward that was set before him, who for the joy that was set before him, he was intentionally resilient in the face of opposition, even when that opposition was death. And this is our assurance that since our model was faithful and it was rewarded, if we are faithful, God will reward us as well. If we live lives worthy of the gospel with the right motive, following the model of Jesus in our generation, we can snuff out the fire that is under the gospel. And that's why the song that we sang, the song we're going to sing coming up, it's very, very important. It says, we have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. In the face of opposition, in the face of the position of comfort, in the face of the position of hardship, in the face of the position of suffering, we are not going to turn back. We're going to stand for God, live for him, such that the gospel will no longer be under fire in the name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.